You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. Hey, everybody. This is the Founder Coach Podcast, where we talk with founder CEOs that are willing to get real about the hard parts of building businesses to reassure us that actually, it's hard for all of us. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a friend, a thought partner, and an inspirational CEO, Chris Edson from Second Nature. Welcome to the show. Oh, you say too many lovely things. Let me introduce you to my friend David on the reverse, my also Aww. good friend. The man that is the most revered person in my entire company purely because of the high quality content that he puts out. It's embarrassing to me how much my team loves you. Oh, that's kind of you to say. How is the team? The team are good. We've gone through a, a really rapid bit of growth recently, um, which has been really, really exciting, but the team's grown a lot. And uh, yeah, so all, all very good things, just classic teething problems of coming out of the startup phase. I heard it told to me that we're going through startup puberty, which I, I felt was incredibly apt as you go kind of above that 50, 60 people mark. Um, yeah, things start to get weird. Yeah. Is your voice breaking as a CEO? I believe so. I believe my leadership style, I would say, is breaking. I don't know. Maybe that analogy doesn't really work. It's blossoming. So, well, you mentioned that the company's grown a lot. You raised your Series A about eight months ago. Yes. Tell us the story of Second Nature. Yeah. So Second Nature came around because me and my co-founder, we were working in healthcare. This is about five or six years ago. And we got just exposed to the devastating things that lifestyle diseases were doing to people in the UK. So diseases like type 2 diabetes, they're just costing the NHS such a crazy amount of money. And the way that it's currently solved is that people will try and get some kind of, they'll try and get a pill, right? And that they expect that the pill might solve this problem. And the pharma companies, again, will be trying to bring out new pills to solve this problem. And me and my co-founder, Mike, we thought this is so ridiculous. There must be a better way of solving this. There must be. What if you could solve this problem with an amazing product that really changed people's lifestyle behaviors? What if you could get people to entirely change their habits, behaviors around food, exercise, and sleep to actually prevent the problem ever happening to begin with? So that was why we started the company. It's because we were just almost disgusted by how it was being treated in most of the Western world. And that was the whole kind of inception point of the company. We didn't really know what product we were going to build. We just knew the problem that we wanted to solve, which was let's eradicate obesity and type 2 diabetes. What was the customer insight that led you to think that there could be a technology solution? I mean, you mentioned that previously pills were the answer. So what did you notice that others didn't? The really interesting thing for me in this is that if you're living with diabetes, the reason why you solve it with a pill is because you do not want to think about your diabetes. You just want to deal with it with a pill. It's actually an incredibly emotive and painful thing that people deal with. And people end up kind of repressing it and thinking, you know what, this is actually so difficult for me to deal with. I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. So let's just take a pill. And then in a few more years, maybe when things get a bit worse, I'll take two pills. And then when things in 10 years get a lot worse, I'll start injecting insulin. And I guess the customer insight off the back of that was, there is a real user problem here, but the user problem is not, how do I deal with my diabetes? The user problem is I've been living with 
being overweight for the last 20 years and I haven't been able to do anything about it and it keeps me up at night, but I need to change this thing and I hate how I feel in my clothes and my skin. I need to change something about it. So through focusing on that, how can we actually help people lose weight sustainably rather than a different way of framing it, which might be how can we prevent type 2 diabetes, right? Because who in their right mind says, I'm waking up today and I want to prevent type 2 diabetes. By framing it as the real user problem, which is I want to lose weight sustainably, I actually want to solve this problem for myself. As soon as we tapped into that insight, everything else became a lot easier. Mm. Yeah, because I guess previously, if you think that pills are the solution, it's because you believe it's some sort of biological, mechanical problem. When actually, if you reframe it as a psychological problem, there are a lot of gains to be made. There was this documentary that's kind of doing the rounds at the moment called The Social Dilemma, which looks at the impact of technology on psychology. Can you use some of those same ideas to actually help people change behaviors? We use a lot of the same metrics that The Social Dilemma looks at, right? We, we look mm -hmm. at all the same metrics, so daily active use of our product, and that's something that we aim towards increasing. The, the question is, because we're trying to change people's health outcomes as a result, does the means justify the end goal? I wouldn't say we've gone so far as to, you know, manipulating dopamine receptors through highly engaging social communities. But yes, we are a behavioral science company. We use behavioral science to influence people's decisions and behaviors for good. At the same time, you could argue that Facebook is a behavioral science company doing exactly the same thing, but just trying to optimize for a slightly different metric. But I do believe these things can be used for good. The, the other really interesting thing here, what, one of the things I thought when we started the company is there's so much incredible talent in the world, engineering talent, product talent, marketing talent. Why are they going to companies like Facebook to try and optimize ad spend? It's bonkers to me. These are the best minds of our generation. And they're going to the likes of Facebook, primarily because it's prestigious. The salaries are through the roof, especially in something like engineering. But really for what? so that people click through more Instagram stories. What if you put those minds to something truly transformational for the human race? What if you put it towards trying to improve health outcomes so that we all live longer, healthier lives? Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. That seems to be a generational shift, doesn't there, towards working for companies with a mission that you can believe in? Yes. Yeah. So you've grown a lot in the last eight months since your Series A. You're building a mission-driven company. What is it like to go from, I guess, where you were, which was about 50 to crossing the 100 employees mark? The really interesting thing for me is just being held to a constantly higher standard. Hmm. When, you, when you start a company, it really is you and someone else or just you by yourself. And you have an mm -hmm. idea and you, you're fairly independent. And a lot of the reasons why you started a company to begin with is probably because you're an independent thinker and you don't really like having a boss. You're probably quite stubborn. So you go and do your own thing. Well, so I, I learned something new over the last week, which was that your previous boss at Monitor didn't believe in the second nature thesis or vision. What feedback did you get initially from the people who said, this is never going to work? The feedback that we got was, especially those people that were in the healthcare industry, they basically said, people have tried to solve this so many times before. How are you guys going to do it any differently? There was a partner at the consultancy firm that I was working at who would speak in kind of grandiose terms and he would say that the billion dollars that Apple right now are spending trying to solve this problem and who are you to go up against them? So I thought, I'll go do it and I'll do it better. 
there is heavy, heavy investment in trying to change health outcomes and trying to get people to live a healthier life all across the board, from the NHS to pharma companies to even the likes of Apple and Google. But the key thing is not many of those people try and solve it with humans, which is what we're trying to do. So we believe that in order to actually change people's habits and behaviors, you need a coach, you need someone guiding you through the changes you need to make. We're not trying to solve this through AI. We're not a MyFitnessPal 2.0. We're trying to solve this through scalable human coaching, which is, is probably not a bet that Apple would ever make. Well, this for me is a big insight and one that on a personal level resonates deeply. Did you find any challenges when pitching a business that relied on humans in order to grow with the venture capitalists? Yeah, and I think it's a completely fair challenge. What is a venture-backed business? It's probably a zero marginal cost business, mm -hmm. ideally. Ideally, it's zero marginal cost, which means every new sale that you make, your marginal costs don't expand as a result. So Google Ads are a really great example of zero marginal costs. Google Ads can just keep on going and going and going, and people can buy more and more and more ads, and the costs don't really change. For us, if more and more people buy our product, we have to hire more and more health coaches. So I think it's entirely fair that venture capitalists would think, hey, is this going to be an ultra profitable business? But the reality is that the market for this is so huge that if you can solve it and you can make that element scalable, then you create a very large profitable company regardless. It's just a difficult thing to do, right? One of our aspects of what makes us defensible is that we have the systems and processes to scale that human element, which is a non-trivial thing to do. Yeah, that's interesting. What are the kind of levers that you pull on from a defensibility point of view? Yeah, there are a couple of those things. So there's, there's brand. We are direct to consumer primarily. We do a lot mm. of work with the NHS, but we believe that we want anyone to be able to access our program, which is why we sell the program direct to consumer. And a lot of our competitors will be going to insurers or, you know, you can get the program through your employer. We believe that this is a human problem. So you need to give access to the individual who is struggling with that problem. As a result, we're building a, a brand that people can believe in, that people can get behind. That's one of the aspects. Brand is a, an oft used. It's oft used, but for me, it's very apt in this situation because one of the roles that a brand fulfills is to provide a certain emotional payoff that is important to consumers. And in this particular case, this isn't just a biological problem. This is a psychological problem too. So having the reassurance that you have a trusted brand behind you, I think that probably means a lot in this space, I would guess. Yeah, it, it really does. This industry that we're in, which is health first weight loss, is incredibly emotional. So yeah. having a brand that you can connect with, it, it really is transformational. Yeah. So you had a situation where people were telling you it wouldn't work. What was it like to pitch this business to venture capitalists then? Did they see the vision that you have? I think something that I was historically not good at is painting a vision of the company. I'm a very operational, executional guy. I like to get my hands dirty. I taught myself how to code to build this business. I'm a builder. I love to build. But yeah. that can mean one of the kind of shadows of that kind of personality is that I don't necessarily paint the vision as well as I could. I think I hated having to explain in no uncertain terms to venture capitalists why they couldn't see this as blindingly obvious as me, which is my, my fault and my problem entirely, right? I, I should not rely on someone else to just assume they have the same context levels as, as I do. So what was it like? You said you hated it. That's a powerful word. What was it like to have to explain that to an investor? Well, 
some of the reasons why you start a company to begin with is because you like to do your own thing. Something my wife says about me is that I, I never play ball. Is that but, what your wife says? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she, she says that I, I basically n never, God, this is awful to say, and it sounds very bad, but I, I basically always get my own way. It, it sounds extremely childish. And obviously I don't always get my own way, but through building your own company, you have constructed a lifestyle in which you are getting your own way more often than you are not, right? As mm -hmm. the CEO, I do have final say on most things. And obviously I try and delegate that stuff away and I try and not have final say off on all things. But you go from being the person at the top to as soon as you have to pitch to venture capitalists, the power dynamic switches completely 180. So you go from being the person with all the power to suddenly you're the person with no power, having to essentially suck up to venture capitalists and bring them along this journey that perhaps you might be resentful to do. It's really interesting to hear you say that. The last couple of years I've been doing more angel investing. And I remember that feeling of sort of powerlessness as a founder. But now I feel something similar as an angel. Like I, I recently lost out on a competitive deal. I couldn't get myself in the round. And maybe on both sides of the table, there's the perception that the other person has more power in that situation. Yes, that's really interesting. The other problem that I have with it, though, is that within the startup itself, we live in an incredibly honest, transparent and vulnerable setting. Mm. the motives of everyone in our company and the motives of me and my co-founder are incredibly clear. It's really, really obvious. Me and my co-founder are just trying to build an amazing company and solve obesity and type 2 diabetes. That's all we're trying to do. Our motives are so, so clear. And then as soon as you start speaking to venture capitalists or investors, you then have to start playing the game. And I know we've spoken about this a lot and you, you've mm. encouraged me on more than one occasion to actually be more vulnerable with investors. But I find that particularly difficult to do because it's almost unavoidable how the whole investment world is geared to some degree of game playing, which is not something that I enjoy. Hmm. There is certainly a, a level of gamesmanship that's required to take a deal to completion, isn't there? Yes, I like, I like you've used that before, the gamesmanship. It's a nice way of reframing playing a game. It's like, no, it's, it's gamesmanship, <laughs> which implies a level of kind of there's a craft. There's an art to it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It implies that this is something that you can learn and that gamesmanship is an interesting reframe because it implies a level of sportsmanship as well. Yeah. Which is something that I think it's not always there in the venture capital world. The idea that raising money for your business is play, is a game, can be a useful reframe to put you in a mood where, yeah, you know what, I can walk away from this because the alternative is it's incredibly serious and company threatening and, and, that, and that can put you in a different mindset. You have to reframe that. Otherwise it will kill you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Otherwise there's, there's far too much on the line, especially as the company gets bigger. Every funding round, the stakes become that much higher. The stakes of not raising that funding round means that maybe it's not you and your co-founder have to go back to your day jobs. Now the stakes are a hundred people lose their jobs. Yeah. Well, let's talk about stakes a little bit. I know at the beginning of your last round, you had the feedback that you were probably the most well-prepared founder going into the Series A roadshow, I guess. The way you'd prepared was second to none. So I'm curious to understand how did you prepare? And then if you had to put a percentage on how much of the success of the round was due to that preparation and why, what would it be? So what did I do to prepare? I think 
I tried to change my Series A raise to be, what if I controlled this process? What if every decision throughout the Series A fundraising was my timelines that I had laid out to everyone? And I found that very, very helpful. I mean, it was slightly optimistic to begin with, but far too often in a, in a fundraise, you kind of fall into it. You start having conversations with different funds. They're all on slightly different timelines. Maybe one you've just sent an email to the associate and another one you've pitched the partner. And that lack of control can make negotiating a lot more difficult. So for example, if you know that you have given all investors information at the same time and everyone has to make a similar decision by the same date, then the pressure from the VCs to make a decision and the anxiety and FOMO that it gives them that, well, if we don't make a decision, then we're going to miss out to someone else is what I really liked about controlling the timeline. So that was the first thing I did was try and lay out, this is what the three-month process of a fundraiser is going to look like. This is when I'm going to start taking first meetings. This is when I'm going to give you the DD pack. And this is when I want a decision by. The reality is, right, that it didn't work out exactly like that. But going in at least with those timelines helped a lot. And it also helped manage my stress, right? Because I knew what the timeline and the process was. So I, I'm an engineer. I probably like certainty to a degree. How did you design this process? Was it a bottom-up first principles approach or did you speak with other founders to come up with it? Yeah, I spoke to a lot of founders. I used my prior experience because I'd, I'd already raised two funding rounds before that. I, I had a friend that was at a, a VC fund called Boulderton Capital. He's been on the investor side so many times that we were able to construct that process together a bit. He's a really close friend of mine and just an amazing thought partner to be able to work that stuff out with. So yeah, just speaking to lots of people and relying on my own experiences. When you're interacting with the investors or when you're interacting with anyone, you're giving off certain signals about your personality, about how you like to work. So me being hyper-prepared and organized gave a signal about, I guess, my conscientiousness or, or my engineering mindset to this whole problem. Hmm. But it probably also gave a signal that I'm not going to be playing hard and loose and that actually I take this stuff really, really seriously. And there are some founders that maybe were in a more luxurious cash position than I was that could probably afford to be a bit more cavalier. But presumably, given that you have a, an engineering mindset, when you go into a process that you understand how it's all going to work, you're going to have a level of confidence that it's going to, let's say, reassure on the other side. Because when I'm speaking with investors and they're talking about deals, the language I often hear is, I can't get comfortable with this deal. And what you realize is a lot of the information that's provided by founders is not just to go into some spreadsheet. It's actually to create a level of comfort that the investor is comfortable in making the decision. I think sometimes less is more though, because you can give too much information. It's like anything. It's to make something simple is that is actually most of the work. So I probably gave up too much information almost. Hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? How did you change the way you presented Second Nature as the process evolved? I think I, I worked a lot with you specifically on the vision and how I would tell the story about what we do. And I, I think I would just go back to that vision more and more and more rather than relying on the detail. Because mm. the, the thing I learned is that investors do want detail and yet they don't. Right. And, and the trap is, you always, this is why I don't like it. You have to be quite a politician with how you answer their questions. I think one of my foibles is if they ask me a question like, hey, why, why did your revenue drop in this month? I would be like, well, 
in that given month, there was a slight degree of seasonality. We actually pulled back some Facebook marketing spend. And we were also running this growth test on one of our landing pages that just meant that that month didn't really go through. Now, that's actually not really what an investor wants to hear. They probably would want me to say something more like, I think the, the thing to focus on here is our month-to-month growth rate over a 12-month period was 25%. So I wouldn't worry too much about a bad month. And I started leaning probably more on the latter way of handling those things rather than the former, which is, you know, someone's asking me a question. So I'm going to show my competence through explaining in great detail why that thing happened. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes you actually don't need to explain yourself with investors. That's an interesting learning. How did your Series A compare to your seed round? I think my seed round, which was with Connect Ventures, I mean, that just felt like a slog. I got turned down so many times. And I think it genuinely gave me a degree of PTSD coming out of it. That sounds ridiculous, but maybe PTSD is far too strong a phrasing of it, but it really burnt me out for Mm. a good few months. And for the months after the seed round, I really wasn't sleeping just because of the constant turmoil of being turned down, of worrying about the cash flow of the company. Me me and my co-founder were maxing out credit cards to try and pay for the bills, which was just a lot. And then I guess between my seed round and my series A round, I lost my dad, unfortunately. And I I lost him very suddenly. He had an aneurysm and that was kind of it, which was obviously really, really devastating for me. But I think it forced a perspective on my view of the company and of life in general. That meant that my series A round, even though the stakes were higher, the preparation is more, the due diligence is even more, it was difficult to get as worked up about it mm. when you, you have, well, like w- when you, when you lose a parent, I think it does just force a level of, yeah, th- you know, if the company fails, I mean, I, I want it to succeed and I'm really confident that it will succeed, but if it does fail, I mean, is that, is that really the end of the world? Whereas I, I think going into the seed round, the company was everything to me. It was so wrapped up in my ego and, you know, the company was me. Still to this day, the comp- company is me, right? They're, they're, they're so um, intertwined. It's, yeah, it's difficult to explain. Mm-hmm. Whereas going into the Series A, I, I had a very different way of looking at things. A different perspective. Yeah, and I'm trying not to use the word perspective too often, but that is the, the closest word. Depending on what you focus on, something can either seem really big or really small. That's framing, actually. No, that's framing. Yeah, there is the rule that everyone's struggling with their own problems, right? And when you're struggling with that problem, it's, it's all relative. So someone struggling with their GCSEs, which we look back and we're probably like, oh, GCSEs, that was nothing. You know, our, the exams we took at 16, whereas at the time, that's everything and incredibly stressful. You know, that's your whole world. So yeah, suffering is, I'm sure that there's an expression that I'm forgetting, which is suffering is relative. God, what's, what's that phrase? You know, Tony Robbins is now, his, his new phrase is kind of suffering is a choice. Which I, mm. which I think is a really, really interesting one. It's kind of, as you said, that in some ways you chose not to let the Series A round let you suffer in the way that it had with the seed round. It's interesting. Suffering is a choice. My wife says happiness is a choice. She says that a lot to me, which always annoys me. Do you choose to be happy today? Exactly. I think it's, it's, it's a classic thing of like a thing you don't want to hear. It's like if you're in a bad mood, so I was like, well, remember, yeah. happiness is a choice. Yeah. There was a story that Matt Lerner shared with me in confidence, and I'd like you to share it openly. It's about a Friday night during your seed round where apparently something happened. So, so Matt was our first venture capitalist investor. 
And he thought I was a bit green, right? So it was our, our very first round of investment. I was in our little two-person office in White City, this little basement that we had lined up right along the central line in West London with tubes going past our window every two minutes, like the lighting not really working very well. The walls are painted black for some reason. And me and my co-founder, we just had these two desks sitting opposite each other. It's a pretty grotty environment. Yeah, I got on this, this call with Matt Lerner, who he was at 500 startups at the time, who are quite a prestigious American venture capital firm. And I kind of knew that this was the last chance saloon. I pretty much pitched everyone in London and they'd said no. But I had this chat with Matt and I think I, I was so fed up that I decided to take a different approach, which was just, I think, to on every single VC that I'd spoken to and talk in great detail about their incompetence and how frustrated I was that they hadn't understood what I was trying to accomplish. And I think the level of honesty that I brought to it resonated with Matt. And I think he shared a frustration of... London VC or, or some, some London VCs that maybe didn't see the, the world in the same way that he did, that he was like, yeah, I'm all right. I'll take a bet on you. Cause he then decided to invest on us on the back of that conversation. That one conversation probably changed the entire course of my life because if we hadn't raised investment from 500, the company would have been done. That would have been it. So I, I'm always very grateful to Matt for taking that bet on us when no one else, literally no one else would. <laughs> and I remember saying to Matt, I was like, so Matt, you you're going to lead this round, right? And he was like, no, we don't lead routes. We'll give you what's called a convertible note. So he basically said, we'll invest in you, but you have to basically raise the rest of the round first. But instead I took that and I told everyone that 500 startups were leading the round and that, you know, 500 startups, they never lead routes, but they're going to lead our round. And then everyone else followed like sheep. They were like, oh my God, this American, this American VC leading the round. Wow. That's, that sounds real. And then all these other people invested and here we are today. So how does that line up with your point around telling VCs what they want to hear? I think you have to read the room, right? I think I picked up that Matt would respond to honesty. <laughs> Sorry. What are the other rooms that you're in? Yeah, I think it's just, it's challenging. Sometimes in VC, you're, you're speaking to someone who's maybe a bit younger, maybe this is their first job, and they're probably a very, very smart person, but they have very little experience and... I think it's more difficult to be brutally honest with that investor than someone like Matt, who was very experienced, had seen thousands of companies who I felt like I could be a bit more transparent with. Hmm. There's something disarming about being honest, isn't there? We're used to being lied to. So that when someone is so obviously being honest with us, it's quite charming. Yes. Yeah, I think it is. The problem is that the stakes are often, they're very high for you to test honesty with investors. <laughs> That's something that I, I struggle with a bit. It's, it's, it's kind of like, well... And just to be clear, we're not talking about lying about numbers here. What, what no, kind no, of honesty no. are we talking about? Uh, I think, how honest do you really want to be about how much money you have in the bank? About how many other investors are really keen for this deal? So here's an example. Say we're raising our seed round with Connect. And so Sitar, who was the, the partner that invested in us, she asked me, hey, Chris, have you got any other term sheets? What are the other funds that are looking at you? Imagine if I'd said, you know what? It's zero. We have zero other funds that are looking at us. So it's, it's you invest or no one invests. I think that is challenging. So in the seed round, this actually wasn't the case. We had a few term sheets, but as a hypothetical example, that is a challenging level of honesty because it's basically saying to the investor, you know what? If you do want to invest, there's no competition here. You can offer whatever valuation you want and you can probably lowball us and put a bunch of other horrible things in the term sheet if you so see fit. So 
I think that's the challenge that I have with being brutally honest. Obviously, this is a negotiation, right? So I don't know, how honest is too honest? Yeah, there seems to be two levels. One is honesty on a literal level. So I guess you don't want to lie about the amount of money in the bank or your sales. The second is a, is a sort of an emotional honesty, I think, which is that this is an area I don't know the answer. This makes me feel scared. This makes me feel angry. Yes. Although, again, I mean, these are just my data points, right? There was an investor that we pitched for the Series A. And I remember this really clearly because he, he took us out to dinner when he was considering investing in us. And he said to me, you know what, Chris, you're too honest and you're not ruthless enough. And the best entrepreneur that I've ever invested in was the founder of Revolut. And you need to be more like him. And I can't remember what, what's the, the founder of Revolut's called. I can't remember his name, but he's quite, the, the founder of Revolut, I guess is, is very well known for the toxic culture that he has built. He operates a very ruthless company, right? He's, he's not a particularly empathetic person. And there's all kinds of horror stories about how Revolut have created a, a not particularly nice working environment. And here I was sitting across the table from this venture capitalist saying, you know what, Chris, you need to be more like this guy that is slated in the press. So I, I think that's, that's the price maybe of being too vulnerable is that, because I, I am an open book most of the time, I, I'm, I'd say I am fairly transparent with where my head's at and where I'm feeling, but that obviously gave the impression to this venture capitalist that, oh, he's too soft or emotionally aware of his own feelings. And actually he needs to like shut off that side and be be really ruthless. At the time, I, I really couldn't disagree with him more. I thought this guy's an idiot thinking that if Revolut was the best company that you've ever backed, like maybe you shouldn't be in venture capital. Yeah, this word ruthless comes up a lot. It comes yeah. up a lot. The perception that the great founders are utterly ruthless and will step over whoever in order to achieve their goal. As you've grown the team, obviously the team has doubled in size very quickly. What are the areas in which you struggle as someone who actually isn't willing to step over people in order to get what they want? I think that what it actually comes down to for me is at what cost do you want to be successful? So undoubtedly, we could operate the company to be more ruthless. So I could fire people at the slightest misdemeanor or, you know, I could expect people to work every weekend or like lots of different ways that that could manifest itself in your culture. But at what cost? So I, I think that actually operating our company in the way that we do, which is a mixture of high performance and high expectations, but high empathy as well, and giving people a lot of trust has actually resulted in an incredible culture in our company. And I'm so, so proud of it. We've been incredibly strict with who we hire, put a lot of trust into people, said, you know what, we're going to expect you to work it out. And, and that's resulted in a, a really brilliant place to work. And I think a different angle on that could have been very micromanaging and we could have really pushed people to burnout. And now we'd be suffering the consequences in another way. I mean, these, these things are all series of trade-offs, right? It, you know, in, in the short term, giving people the benefit of the doubt, that might actually do a disservice in the, in the short term. It might mean that maybe that feature doesn't get shipped immediately. But the longer term benefit is that you're probably going to keep that person for longer. You, mm. You're probably actually going to help grow them as an individual so that in six months, that team or that person is probably operating even faster and more productive than they were before. So I, I really stand behind how we have built the company, which is I will give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to fire people for the slightest transgression. 
Mm. So to get the culture where you've currently got it, what were the mistakes that you made along the way and what did you learn from them? I mean, this is classic founder 101 stuff, but not stepping away fast enough, not putting the trust in people. As someone that's very operational and very hands-on, who pretty much did everything, along with my co-founder, like the two of us were doing everything in the early days, it's very difficult to then hand off that responsibility to other people who maybe aren't the owners of the business. So I think learning how to do that and learning how to do that sooner is something that I would recommend that every founder does. It, it's classic, right? You, you can't scale a company unless you learn how to delegate. Do you have a story which illustrates the need to step away from the details? Yeah, I think, I think recently our head of engineering came to me and I still occasionally would code up kind of features, right? So for a CEO of a company that's getting towards 100 people, there are obviously some dragons there if that's going to be our approach. And our head of engineering came to me saying, look, you, you probably need to stop doing this because it actually has a few unintended consequences on the rest of the team. But that's a very difficult thing for me to step away from. It's something that actually brings me joy to be able to, to bring features to, to users. It helps me feel connected to the product. But ultimately, it's probably not the best thing for the future of the company that I'm still coding away features that might end up breaking in production or end up actually annoying the rest of the engineering team. What went through your mind when your engineering manager gave you this feedback? What did you say to yourself? The story I probably told myself is, why do you hate me? head of engineering. This stuff that I do is productive. But I think when I uncovered it a bit more with him, I understood the rationale behind it. And the, the story that I told myself was probably, how can you not see the value that I'm bringing here? You know, I'm, I'm clearly, I'm building features that users are getting value out of. Like, how is that not, how is that not obvious? <laughs> how can you not see that? Well, a lot of people listening to this will be nodding their heads being like, yeah, I mean, what you were doing was valuable. So What's the other way of looking at this? Well, the interesting insight is that your influence's CEO is unavoidable sometimes. So regardless of if you have the best culture in the world, if you have a team that really can tell you no, that can give you feedback, all of those things being true, there is still a kind of unavoidable way in which people will find it difficult to challenge you. Mm -hmm. And put it this way, if I would build a feature, the engineering team would have some difficulty challenging that and giving feedback on it. It ended up being disempowering to the engineering team because they would think, well, say it broke, they would be like, well, I'm not going to fix it. That was Chris's code. And Chris just went and did that of his own volition. So th those different facets came in that it actually ended up decreasing accountability within the engineering team. Having stuff not break, engineering team, this is your responsibility. Let me play that back because that's interesting. So by contributing to the engineering team, you are actually reducing their own accountability to the output. Yes, exactly. Which is really interesting. As an engineer, you can look at it from one perspective, which is, but you're contributing productive code. You're building a feature. It's like the law of unintended consequences that can have some other really interesting knock-on impacts that I just wasn't aware of at all. So I'm very mm. grateful that our head of engineering came to me and, and tried to explain what those other knock-on impacts were. And I guess that's the benefit maybe of having a culture whereby people can come to me and talk to me about stuff, however difficult it is. So let's, let's assume there are some people listening to this who work for a CEO, but need the CEO to back off for them to take full accountability of the situation or full responsibility, I should say. 
What advice would you give to someone pushing back against the CEO who is too heavily involved? I think something that founders in general respond really, really well to is the idea of taking charge. It's really easy to defer to the founders of the CEO and just kind of take their word for it. But if you could say to that founder or that CEO, hey, look, I've got engineering. This is my remit. You're going to have to trust me on this. I've got it. And here are the things that I'm doing to make it a really high functioning unit. What a founder really wants to know is, are you taking this thing as seriously as I am? Yeah. As the owner of the company and the business and the person most heavily invested in its success, all I want to know is, are you going to work really hard to make this thing amazing? Do you really care to the same level that I do? Can you take charge of this thing to allow me to step back? So those are the signals that I think as founders, we respond really, really well to. It's the, the number one thing that we get excited about is when people take proactivity. Yeah. You know what? Something just became clearer to me as you were saying this, which is like when you work for a corporate, being calm, collected, perhaps, you know, a little bit easygoing is somewhat rewarded because you've got to work as a team. You've got to manage your internal perceptions and so forth. Whereas in a startup, when you're speaking with the CEO or speaking with a founder, I think the more intensity you bring, it's a bit like what you did with Matt Lerner and you kind of opened up and you showed your cards about how much you care. I think when you do that with the founder, it buys you a lot of credibility. And then when they buy into you, that's when you can actually take charge, as you've said. I like that phrasing. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think there's all the usual stuff around how do you present feedback to someone in a non-confrontational way that doesn't leave them feeling judged or character assassinated. And that leaves us with conviction. This idea that the way you say something is as important as how you say it. Because I guess when Dan came to you, it seemed like there was a level of conviction in what he was saying that you resonated with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like speaking to investors, right? You have to have conviction about what you're doing. If you don't really believe it, if you can't say it with confidence and passion, how is anyone else going to get it? If our head of engineering didn't come to me with conviction, passion about what he's trying to accomplish within his engineering team. You know, I think something that he did that I really, really liked is when he came to me with that conversation, he said, look, my goal is to make a really incredible engineering unit. Mm. And this thing is preventing me from doing that, which was, I felt, thought a really excellent way of framing that whole thing. Yeah. I think one of the things that resonated when he said that was the fact that you have the same goal. Exactly. And yeah. it was probably like, we're actually both on the same page. We both want the same thing. This is the, the beauty of working in a startup is that there is very little political behavior because everyone's on the same page. Everyone's trying to accomplish the same things. Mm -hmm. you, you're probably not just on a career ladder. Your goal is let's build an amazing company. Let's really try and solve this problem. One of the aspects of that is to build an incredible engineering culture and, and team. Yeah, I, that's what I love about startups. It's what, why I find getting investment challenging sometimes because sometimes those goals aren't as aligned. Sometimes the goals of why people are investing their resources are different. Mm. Interesting. I need to think about that. The, yes, the goal of a venture capitalist is to invest in you in order to build a large, successful company. Where's the misalignment? I think it's just the lack of transparency within the process about knowing where you stand, right? So as someone that is raising money, I can't be fully transparent with, hey, this is where we're at. 
we have zero term sheets right now. You're the last investor that we're speaking to. And from an investor's perspective, they also can't be completely transparent because they're keeping their cards close to their chest. It, it's very much within the venture capitalist's interest to spin you along for as long as possible, right? And, and essentially waste your time. There's very little motive for them to give you a quick no, which is how you end up with founders being very frustrated that they thought that things were amazing, right? They, they thought, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're definitely, we're, this fund is really, really keen on us. We're, we're speaking to the partners. We're doing the, the final partner meeting. Then they end up with a no. And there's often a disconnect there of, but I don't understand. They were so keen on us. Their energy levels were so high. They were saying all the right things. And now they've said no. I think that's a really common frustration point for founders is uh, we were so sure that they were going to say yes. And then they said no. Yeah. Well, I've seen this play out a number of times with clients, myself personally, you're speaking with maybe a principal in a VC fund who is, I think, genuinely convinced that the deal is done. And then there's this kind of mysterious investment committee. I mean, I always thought that investment committees were in like this dark room with smoke, kind of like, you know, Churchill in, the, in that, that film. Yes. But actually, uh, it's just a bunch of people talking at each other. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a certain fear of the unknown, especially when power comes into play. So I remember when, as the company started to grow, we put together a leadership meeting. So every, every Monday, we would get together as a leadership team in the company to give each other updates on various things. And I remember when we, when we set that up, there was such nervousness throughout the organization. I remember the feedback that came back was, can you guys just let us know what you talk about in those meetings? Which was funny to me because from my perspective, it's just kind of obvious, right? It's the leadership team getting together and speaking about operational updates and whatever's going on in the company that week. And yet there was almost a fear of like, well, what decisions are being made in this mysterious meeting? Well, this is your chance to tell everybody. So what does go on in your leadership meetings? Yeah, if I say it's boring or uneventful, that, that kind of does it a bit of a... There's no champagne? <laughs> Sometimes there's, there's champagne. No, look, it's a chance for me and Mike, my co-founder, to announce any information that's timely. It's an opportunity for the, the team leads to get input on their plans. So our leadership team can come up and say, hey, here's what we're going to do. Everyone else can feedback on that. It's an opportunity for the leadership team to be held accountable to their numbers. So they can present their numbers and we can say, is this good? Is this bad? And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, it's an opportunity for people to begin the week with energy and purpose. Hmm. So it sets the tone. This is the start of the week. This is what we want to accomplish. Let's go. What's your favorite part of your leadership meeting? Hmm. It's a good question. We try and avoid status updates in our leadership meetings as much as possible mm -hmm. because Status updates can probably more, more commonly be done over email and they can be quite boring. Instead, a group discussion, I, I find the most edifying thing to do in a leadership meeting, which just means we'll come along with a topic and we'll try and hash it out with a group. I find that is the best use of a leadership meeting. Hmm. That, that's what probably brings me the most energy is, hey, we've got this thing to hash out. Let's debate it. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Do you use leadership meetings to make decisions or more to as a forum for people to listen to each other? It obviously depends who the decision maker is. Sometimes we're just, we're getting input from our leadership team before my co-founder and I make a decision on something. Other times we'll make the decision in the room. It really depends on um, what the thing is. Yeah. I have one question to ask before we say goodbye, which is what's something that's challenging about being a CEO that you've never told anyone before? Mm. What have I not told anyone? It's challenging. I think 
<laughs> the, the issue I have with this question is that as someone who is very transparent with my leadership team, with my board and with my exec coach, Dave Bailey, I tend to tell people most things. I, I think the, the most challenging part about being CEO that I have told people <laughs> is that people take what you say way too seriously. Mm -hmm. You're held to a much, much higher standard and it is unavoidable. So every meeting that you're in, every interaction you have, people put so much extra weight on the things that you do and say because you are the CEO, which means you are held to a much higher standard. There was this, this one time in the company, we hosted um, a Super Bowl party. It was just in the office. Obviously, it was like 2 a.m., just drinking some beers, watching the Super Bowl. And a few of my friends came along. And the thing that my friend said to me afterwards is, suddenly you are the funniest person in the room. <laughs> because they, they were like, every, every joke that you made or whatever, the entire team was just like, oh my God, that's the funniest thing in the world. Like, oh my God, Chris, you're hilarious. And don't get me wrong, I, I really hope that we haven't built a culture of kind of yes people or... Um, Sycophants. I, I yeah. don't think that's the case at all. I just think it, it's something that kind of happens inevitably when you're in a position of authority. And, and it, it's not something that I enjoy. Like the thing, it's really not actually that pleasant being in that role whereby you are kind of questioning, am I, am I funny? Or are people laughing at my jokes because I'm the CEO? <laughs> hmm. You know, that's actually the reason I got out of investing because I, I couldn't deal with the sycophantism. Founders I'd, I've met literally one time would say, Dave, we've seen your background. It would be amazing to have you on the board, I'm like, yes. you don't even know me. Yeah, like it, it doesn't feel authentic. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time and, and just being open and, and vulnerable today. If there are any listeners here that want to join a rocket ship and they want to work with a company that's really helping people with their lifestyle and weight loss and all of that good stuff, visit secondnature.io. You can find a bunch of open jobs. I saw you got product manager, senior designer, data engineer, some health coaching. Got a lot on there. A lot of Ooh, good stuff. stuff. Mm, yeah. A lot of great stuff. Come join us. As Chris said, you won't be working weekends, which is great. Is that true? For, for, the, for the most part, yeah. One out of three. One out of three. Okay, good. Well, look, once again, Chris, thanks so much. Continued success. What can we expect in the next couple of months with Second Nature? We're calling bull on the diet industry in January, and it's going to be awesome. All right. All right. Well, January is the time when we make our New Year's resolutions. So if you are so inclined, check out secondasia.io. They can help you with your New Year's resolutions. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I know there are a lot of founders that are going to resonate with a lot of the issues today. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe in Apple or follow on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. And join us next time. We'll be going deep with another founder who's brave enough to come on this podcast and bear it all. Okay, so until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and catch you soon. Alex, thanks so much for jumping on the call. You are the CEO of StepSize. In a sentence, what does StepSize do? StepSize is an issue tracker that lives in the code editor and helps engineering teams fight technical debt. Now, you recently took the Clarity program. What motivated you to take Clarity? Well, I had collected loads of user feedback on our product and positioning and was a few months away from starting to fundraise again. And I wanted to take all our lessons and integrate them into a new narrative for step size of the company, but also the product. 
Got it. Now, could you share some of your key takeaways from doing the program? I loved working with storytelling templates, having every aspect of step size written down into a short paragraph with clear sections to tweak for every iteration was hugely helpful in clarifying my thinking. On top of that, it was extremely helpful to bounce ideas and run our work past the community of founders who were also working through the program. I can't tell you how many great ideas I've picked up from them. And is there anything you want people who are considering clarity to know? Just do it. As a founder, I would recommend clarity to any startup founder and CEO looking for a framework that they can use to clarify and constantly improve their company's narrative over its lifetime. My cohort included founders at very different company stages, and they all left with major breakthroughs. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. If you want to learn about how StepSize can help you with your tech debt, why don't you visit StepSize.com? And if you want to learn about what Clarity can do for your company, visit DaveBailey.com, click the links to Clarity and get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Now let's get back to this amazing episode.